0: This morning, we're going back to the book of Romans. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going over to Romans chapter 10 and 11 this morning. So grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 946. Page 946. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that one. Keep it. We would love to make that our gift to you to equip you to continue to read and study the Word of God. All right, so uh, one of the biggest complaints that I get from my non-Christian friends when I share with them the good news of Jesus or tell them about the beauty of God's work in community. Um, One of the biggest complaints I get from my friends who are uh, in the process that has now become known as deconstruction, right? People that were raised often in Christian homes with a lot of certainty that are now struggling with that certainty and deconstructing much of of what they've been taught and and, uh, the number one complaint i get is the hypocrisy inside the church right that 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 people claim to follow jesus but they're not really doing a whole lot of following (laughs) they hold to a set of truths but they don't live out the principles of those truths right they know a lot of right things and they're very moral people but they don't embody love and grace like jesus did Right? Mahatma Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Um, and so let's just, let's just admit this right up front. right? The church is full of hypocrites. It is. People who say they believe in God, a God of love, but they become self-righteous, judgmental. They feel like they have a right to determine who measures up, who doesn't who's worthy, who's not. Uh, And and when I'm sitting with my friends, my response is, you know what? You're right. And I have to admit, sadly, I'm I'm one of them, right? The hypocrites aren't out there. (laughs) They're in here. We all have the capacity of hypocrisy, and we all at times are hypocrites. People who put up a false front people who are not fully living out the values we claim to value, the truths that we claim to believe, we are all guilty. As I have become fond of saying recently, it's a miracle that any of us can be saved. And praise God for that miracle. One of the biggest barriers to my becoming a Christian in my early life, part of my story, uh, was my experience with Christians. Uh, my exposure to the church in my teenage years was not a positive exposure. It did not fill me with with hope. Now, that may not be your story, and I'm not saying it is everyone's, but I am saying that, that this is a common enough story that we need to admit that it is true that Christians can often become smugly judgmental, moralistically self-satisfied, and condemning condemning of others who don't live up to our standards, condemning of people who haven't obeyed in ways we've obeyed or performed in ways we've performed or done what we've done. Now, here's the thing. When I became a believer, what I realized was that I wasn't describing a they. I was describing a we, that I couldn't stand outside of the people of God and judge the people of God for their hypocrisy while I was also embodying that very same hypocrisy it is so easy for those of us who see the smug judgmentalism in the church to become smugly judgmental of those who are smugly judgmental we we become the embodiment of the very thing we despise we actually do what we condemn y'all there's nothing new about this There's nothing new about this. This has been the persistent problem of God's people throughout human history. When you read through the Old Testament, you see it happen again and again and again in the nation of Israel. When you read through the New Testament, you see it happen again and again and again in these brand new churches that were planted. This is not a Western problem. This is not an American problem. This is not, in our text, a Jewish problem. It is a human problem. We are... A community that is marked by grace. That's the one thing we all have in common. You know that, right? It's the one thing we have, all of us have in common is is our need for grace. Not our worthiness for that grace. Because no one's worthy of grace. Grace comes to the unworthy. It is a gift to those who don't deserve it. So our commonality isn't our success. Our commonality isn't our rightness. Our commonality isn't our strength. Our commonality is our need. Our need for grace and our God who gives it. And if we forget that, it won't be long before we're no longer walking in a manner worthy of that grace. All right, let's take a look at our text. I've already kind of exposed the central theme that we're going to be exploring in today's text. We're looking at Romans ten eighteen through eleven ten. Um, so I'm going to start in seventeen, just again for context. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. All day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, last week um, we saw that, that, that final line, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, right? We were in this beautiful passage in Romans 10 that describes this beautiful call of the gospel, that we are to embody it and deliberate, right? That, that it is a message of love, and as a message of love, we are to live out that love, be, be those who are transformed by that love and bringing that love to others, right? Because we are loved, we love others, but more than that, we're telling them why. We're giving them the message behind the love. We, we are to love as we have been loved, but we're also to tell others how we have been loved. That God went to war with sin, and death and won the victory and the message of his victory the evangelion the good news has been entrusted to us to deliver to others that they too can be forgiven they too can be delivered from their enslavement they too can have hope of being made right even though they cannot make themselves right having a hope that isn't based in their ability It's based in God's. It's not based in their performance. It's based in His. It is not based on my merit. It's based on His grace. Right? He died under the weight of our guilt so that we could stand in the light of His righteousness. And we receive it by grace through faith. God extends it to us as those who don't deserve it to simply be received. Right? That we might trust His character, his performance, and his promise. But that truth of Romans 10, as beautiful as it was and and, um, as important as it was, doesn't fully address Paul's audience's original question, which was if Israel is God's elect nation, how can they not also be elect to receive salvation? Right? How can they be elect but not elect? because Paul asserts they were elect to honor but they weren't elect to blessing they had no right to blessing right to receive the blessing they couldn't simply claim their heritage their performance their obedience their family ties their history to Abraham to receive the blessing they must not rest on the honor of their heritage they must trust in Jesus they must receive their Messiah. They must set aside their damnable good works. Uh, a phrase that's in one of the quotes in your bulletin. and I like it. The, the writer of Hebrews describes them as dead works. Um, dead works are works that we do to try to take hold of life, but they're dead. And they can't get us there. They're all the good works we do to try to earn what we can never earn, to pay for what we can never afford. It is, it is all the good stuff we do in our moral self-improvement projects and our attempt to impress ourselves and to impress others. They are damnable good works. Because as we accumulate those good works that we think um, shout our righteousness and declare our rightness and our performance and our progress toward the glory of God, they condemn us because they show that we're not trusting in God. We're trusting in ourselves. We're not resting in grace. We're trying to rest on our performance. We are not growing in humility. We're building an edifice of our pride that allows us to think more highly of ourselves and condemn others. If they are to receive the blessing of God, they must abandon their dead works and rest in in the favor of God, extended to them in grace, right? They must hear, receive, and believe the gospel. As Paul said in Romans 10, quoting uh, Isaiah, right? How beautiful are the feet on the mountains of those who bring good news, who publish peace. So now Paul reverts to the original question that started his discussion, right? How can Israel be God's elect nation, but not walking in the blessing of that election is there something wrong with them is there something wrong with God has God not kept his promise to that nation has he not honored his election and Paul asserts that the problem with their unbelief isn't God and it isn't lack of access to the good news right Uh, Nor is this rejection of Jesus a huge surprise to God, right? In the first century, when Jesus came, we found that the Jewish leadership opposed their Messiah. They opposed Jesus. They they found him threatening instead of inviting. His kingdom of grace was a threat to their kingdoms of self-righteousness and power. And as a result, they rejected him right and as the early church grew the gospel spread from city to city often in the synagogues it usually began with a small number of jewish people in the population but it spread much more rapidly among the gentiles among the non-jewish people to which often the jewish populations had a very strong and very negative reaction because they did not consider the gentiles worthy of uh, being called god's people so paul says look it wasn't a lack of access. It wasn't a lack that, of, of, that they didn't hear the good news or that God didn't share it with them, right? And God is not surprised by their lack of faith. So Paul quotes three verses at the end of chapter 10, uh, three sections that um, to the Jewish mind. Again, they would have noticed this. I highlight it because we're not accustomed to seeing these things. Uh, we tend to divide the Bible into the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? And and when you look at the Old Testament, sometimes we'll divide it up between history and poetry and prophecy and uh, stuff like that. The Jewish mind divided the Old Testament into three sections. Um, The law, the Torah, which were the first five books, the writings, which were uh, the history and the poetry and things like that, and the prophets. So there were three sections of the Old Covenant literature in the Jewish mind, and Paul here pulls a witness out of all three. All three testify to God's intention and work uh, that this one is part of God's plan, but two um, rests solely, in a sense, on those who rejected the message, right? In verse 18, uh, he quotes uh, Psalm 19:4, right? Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Um, interesting that he quotes that, 19.4 is actually about the witness of natural revelation, he's describing the stars, that the stars have gone out to the entire world um, and here he's, he's saying, in the same way that the testimony of natural revelation, that God has revealed himself through the beauty of nature um, God has also revealed the specific nature, his revelation of Jesus to them, right um, and there is, a, there is a, a slight I think, um I don't know, a theological point here that, that is a little bit of a dig, but also a little bit of a challenge. And that's this, that, that it doesn't matter how much revelation you've received, it matters how you receive that revelation. So in other words, God reveals himself in a lot of ways, right? And sometimes it's a, it's a tiny spark in the darkness and sometimes it is a blinding light. Someone who responds to the tiny spark in the darkness with faith will respond to the blinding light the issue isn't the amount of revelation it is the heart that receives it and so in the same way they didn't receive god's revelation to them in natural revelation in in simply nature itself the way god revealed himself through through general revelation they the very people of god who received the old testament who received the prophets who received the psalms even though they were given the blinding light of the special revelation of god didn't receive that either it wasn't the amount. It was the heart. It wasn't that they weren't given enough truth. It was that they didn't receive the truth. They didn't bring a heart of humility to respond. And then he goes on in verse 19. But I asked, did, did Israel not understand? Right? Okay, they received the revelation. Did they not understand it? And now he turns to Moses. So he went from the writings, and now he turns to the Torah. And he quotes um, uh, the Old Testament um, and Deuteronomy, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. The word nation there, ethnos, is, is Gentiles. So, even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy is prophesying that God would ultimately work through the Gentile nations to provoke Israel to jealousy, that they would see people being blessed and become jealous that they themselves were, were excluded from that blessing and then in verse 20 he goes on and he says then Isaiah is so bold as to say I have been found by those who did not seek me I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me why is Isaiah being bold why does he describe him that way because Isaiah takes the next step and says pretty clearly that um, God's blessing will come but it's going to come to a people who weren't even looking for the blessing Like you work so hard, you have so much zeal, you're so proud about your progress and your performance, and you know what? That blessing that you are working so hard to attain, you see those people over there? They're not even looking for it. They're not even asking for it. I'm gonna give it to them. That honor that you are so intent on taking hold of because you think it is your right because you think you you have it is your due I'm going to give it to them (laughs) in a sense it's almost as if God is mocking their effort their intent it's like look what I will do I'm going to show myself to people who aren't even looking I'm going to reveal myself to people who aren't even asking why? Because the pride they take in their effort is the very thing that is killing their ability to respond in faith. Their pride in their self-improvement, in their obedience, in their self-control, in their personal growth is the very thing that is putting them into a stupor that is keeping them from responding to grace, see, he's provoking them. He's provoking them by giving his blessing to those that they despise, those they look down on, those that are like they don't deserve it, to prove that it's grace. And you're like, man, that that sounds really mean, Steve. <laughs> Is God mean? Is God like that? Is God like like? poke us and prod us and yeah he does but it's not because he's mean uh it's because he's love listen god's purpose isn't to condemn it is to provoke and that's different if god wanted to condemn them he could he's not seeking to condemn them he's seeking to provoke them but not to anger not to greater self-effort and self-improvement, not to greater, man, I'm gonna double down on my efforts to really fix myself, to do better, to try harder. He is provoking them to humility. He is provoking them to respond to grace. How do we know that? Well, take a look at his posture in verse 21, right? But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands, pause there, because the rest of it's about their disobedience and their contrariness, their, their refusal to respond. But look at God's posture. Through this whole thing, what is, this isn't just a temporary gesture of God, it is his posture. What is his posture? All day long, I have held out my hands. He has extended to them the very same blessing he has freely given to those that they despise. The problem isn't with God. The problem is with a people who grow proud and hard-hearted and self-reliant and judgmental. They think they deserve it and therefore are excluded from it. And so God provokes them. Do you want what they have? Repent of your good works, repent of your pride, repent of your self-improvement projects, and receive, receive grace. Come to me with nothing more than your need. So, Paul goes on, has God determined that his chosen nation would be a rejected nation, right? We see... Uh, during the lifetime of Paul while he is spreading the gospel uh, most of the Jewish nation is rising up against him working against him not receiving the message of Jesus right is is that it that that the nation that had been elect to honor would now be excluded from the blessing of that honor was that God's intention and that's That's really Paul's question as he goes into chapter 11, right? In verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, he's not talking about all people. He's talking specifically about the nation of Israel. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Judah. Paul is now describing what is often named remnant theology. And that's not something really weird or fancy. It just, it's just that, that when, when we see a whole group of people um, rejecting God, re- removing themselves from the blessing of God, fighting against God, God often protects a remnant, right? When, when God's people rebel against God, when God's people stray from God, God keeps for himself a remnant. He never allows his witness to die. He never allows his people to be exterminated, even in, midst, in the midst of seasons of rebellion and apostasy and pride, he protects a remnant, right? God clearly, Paul just says, God clearly hasn't rejected the nation of Israel because you know what? I'm an Israelite. I'm about as, I'm about as Jewish as you get, Right? I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm a descendant of Benjamin. I, I was raised in a Jewish home. I have Jewish heritage. I am Jewish through and through. God has not rejected the nation of Israel, otherwise I myself would not be resting in the blessing of grace. God has not rejected, right? And then he goes on to say that this is, in fact, a broader principle, right? Um, in, in verses um, the end of, of the verse there. Um, God has not rejected his, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, and he's talking about the nation of Israel, and he's talking about the fact that God foreknew them, had a relationship with them before they existed. I don't know if, if you remember the Old Testament history, but, but God basically created them as an ethnic group by calling Abraham out and giving them um, uh, Abraham and Sarah, the Isaac, right, as a, as a gift. God created the nation, right? God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, God always keeps and protects a remnant of his people. Right? Elijah found himself in a rough spot. We're going to get into it a little bit more in a moment. But, but he thought he was the only follower of Yahweh left. Like he was that isolated and he, and he wasn't being hyperbolic. Like he really thought he was the last one. Like, <laughs> like of all the people, this is it. Um, I'm alone. And he found himself alone and discouraged. And God shows up to him and says, look, you're not alone. I have 7,000 people in this nation who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You don't know them. You don't see them. But I know them. And I see them. There is a remnant. You are not alone. I have kept this for myself. There is a remnant. So now Paul asserts there is also a remnant now, right? In verses 5 and 6. So too... At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace, right? I have kept a remnant of people who respond to my grace and rest in my grace and aren't standing on their own pedigree and aren't trying to prove themselves and, and grow in pride and condemn others. And, and, and they, they, they have responded to me in faith and they rest in in my grace and they are elect not because of their heritage not because of their birthright not because of their religious identification not because of their, of their rightness in their theology but because they have responded to my grace because if it isn't of grace it's of works if it's based on anything they've done any merit they bring to the table it is no longer of grace the one thing all God's people throughout all of history has in common is our need and our willingness to bring that need and humility to God to have that need met by his love in his grace. That's faith. God kept a remnant. So too today. God keeps a remnant of people who are humbly and joyfully um, marked, right? They have received grace by faith they have responded to God's invitation of grace with humble helpless but bold faith and all of this Paul goes on to say is part of God's plan right remember God is sovereignly working out his story in human history right he he is working his story through our story. He is at work through individuals to ultimately tell a universal story of redemption and restoration. All of this, he says, is part of God's plan. Verse seven, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Um, the elect obtained it. Again, a little bit of prov. Provoking language here. Israel would have thought of themselves as the elect nation of God, and, Paul, and Paul's like, the elect, men. They're receiving the blessing. Not the elect nation. Not those who have a heritage. Not those who have a performance. Not those who have a right. But those who come without it. Those who come with their need. The elect. They've obtained it. Right? And the rest? Those that are coming in their pride? God gives them over to their pride. God gives them over to their performance. God gives them over to their sense of superiority. God gives them over, and they are hardened. Hardened in their pride. Hardened in their condemnation of others. Hardened in their sense of superiority. They're hardened. This is, he says, part of God's plan. As it is written, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. It's a quote from Isaiah. Scary language. I mean, for real. Jesus used this language quite a bit. He would, he would look at his audience and he would say, I've got something to say to you for those who have ears to hear, then hear. For those who have eyes to see, then see, right? What he's saying is, is the things that I'm saying to you must be spiritually discerned and they can only be spiritually discerned by grace you're not going to understand this with your natural mind you're not going to be able to apprehend the work or the presence of God uh, through your own effort or your own intuition or your own intelligence you need it given to you and it will only be given to you in grace and if you don't come in grace God will give you a spirit of stupor Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. As David says in the next verse, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Yeah, this is getting rough. Paul's like, you, you think you deserve a seat at the table. There is a table set for you, but it's not the table of blessings. It's the table of judgment. It's not the feast of the kingdom of God that's being set for you in your pride. The table you claim is at a table of judgment. So it may look like God has forsaken his covenant people, Paul says, but he has kept a remnant for himself. God always keeps a remnant for himself. What in the world do we do with that? All right, there's the passage. Um, How is that applicable to us, right? How is this going to help me through my week? What are we going to do with this? This is a fun passage. Um, All right, so here's my takeaway, okay? there's There's a lot of complex theology here. There's a lot to wrestle with and dig into, and I encourage you to do it, man. Sovereignty of God is never an easy topic, and if it doesn't leave you unsettled, you haven't wrestled with it. I'm just going to tell you. If it doesn't leave you uh, a little bit like, ah, I don't get this stuff, then you're, you're not getting this stuff. Um, okay? I'm just telling you. But here's what, I, here's what I think we should take away from this. I think we should take away from this a warning. A solemn, serious warning. Pride in religious performance or pride in theological pedigree I know the right things I do the right things is deadly dangerous deadly dangerous there are few things more dangerous to our ability to receive and thrive in grace than growing self-satisfied in our performance becoming impressed with ourselves with our growth with our obedience, with our self-control, with our progress. And our moral self-improvement projects. Pride. Pride is the worst enemy you have. Pride is the root of every other sin. And there are few things more dangerous than religious pride. Pride. Because religious pride doesn't show itself like, say, um, I don't know, lustful pride. If we indulge in lustful pride, then our conscience condemns us, and the spirit awakens us, and we're like, "Yeah, I already knew that was bad. Man, I'm gonna find repentance. The problem with religious pride is that it's an opioid. It drugs us, and it causes us to have a stupor. We will be self-congratulatory and condemning of others, and feel like God is joining in the applause. Religious pride is the most dangerous thing to the human soul. The place where this is going to be tested most deeply is in the community of God's people. As it was in Israel, so it is in the church. Y'all, your pride is going to be tested here in relationship with other Christians. <laughs> your greatest danger to growing in religious pride isn't, isn't the bad guys out there, the, it, it, is, it is the dynamics of what's happening in here. The church is a mess. I don't know if you've noticed that, it's a mess because we're all a bunch of broken people coming together trying to stumble forward together in grace and our brokenness is rooted in our pride and some of us are showing up proud of our religious heritage some of us are showing up proud of our intellectual prowess some of us are showing up proud of of um I, man i couldn't even go through the entire list some of us are going to be rude to each other and say hard things that shouldn't be said we're going to be judgmental toward people we shouldn't be judgmental of we're going to we're going to tell stories about other people that are the stories we think are true but aren't true and then when those people run into those stories they're going to be hurt and they're going to feel unseen and they're going to feel defrauded and, and it's going to feel like a barrier to community Y'all, that's part of what's going to happen. Like, I'm not describing the dangers that could happen. I am describing the dynamics that are happening. We are a bunch of broken, prideful people coming together, trying to stumble forward together in grace. And it is going to be hard. And I think we can learn something from Elijah's experience. So in closing, I want to go back to Elijah for a moment. Elijah... Elijah Elijah you can read his story in first kings uh, 16 through I don't know probably 22 or so um but Elijah Elijah really was potentially the last prophet in Israel uh, Ahab was king and his wife Jezebel uh loved Baal in fact her name means to cry out to Baal um her name comes from uh, a specific part of, of of dark worship of Baal where they would be trying to call him up from the netherworld um, so Jezebel loved Baal and she led the entire nation to worship Baal and and a part of her her zeal she killed the prophets of Yahweh until Elijah was the only one left Elijah is sent by God to Ahab to prophesy a drought which means death for the entire nation droughts in the old world uh, you know, you couldn't just pump water over from, you know, uh, the Colorado River, uh, you know, you, 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 you would die, and, and he prophesied a drought, and the drought came, and Ahab called uh, Elijah the troubler of Israel, as if Elijah were the problem, and not Ahab, um, and then Elijah says, look, I, I just want to show you something, right, uh, get all your prophets, all your prophets of Baal, and have them meet me over here on this mountain, and so all the prophets of Baal show up, and he's like, I propose a contest, And today's contest is going to be to see whose God will actually show up. So you go sacrifice your animal, do your rituals, whatever you need to do, but you don't get to light the match. Not that there were matches, but you get what I'm saying. You don't get to to strike the flint. You don't get to start the fire. You call fire from Baal. So you go do it. And then we'll see how it goes and I'll do it and whoever loses dies. How's that? And so the prophets of Baal go and they sacrifice their animal and they build it up on this dry tinder and and they start calling out to Baal and they start cutting themselves as part of their ritual and they're bleeding and they're yelling and they're raising their incantations and it's silence. And they eventually collapse in exhaustion. Elijah sacrifices his animal places it on the wood, digs a trench around it, and then says, pour water on the sacrifice. And they poured so much water that it ended up filling, not only saturating the wood and and, and the sacrifice, but it filled the trench around it. And then he prayed. Lord God of Israel, show yourself strong. And the fire came down like an explosion. It consumed the wood, it consumed the sacrifice, it dried up the moat. It was dramatic, it was powerful. It vindicated Elijah, like in that moment. Can you imagine if you're the one being used by God in that moment, you know what I'm saying? Like you're like top of the world, right? God showed up, right? And and then he's like, you guys lost so he's like come on nation of Israel it is time so the nation of Israel comes and they surround the prophets of Baal and they slaughter them that's it man Baal's been defeated right end of story so Ahab gets on his his chariot and starts heading back to Jezreel where his palace is Elijah's so excited he outruns him now Jezreel is not just where the palace is it's where Jezebel is Ahab thinks the battle is over. The victory is won. And when he gets there and Ahab informs Jezebel about what has happened, Jezebel gets her servants together and sends them out to uh, Elijah and says, You know what happened to all those other prophets of Yahweh? It's about to happen to you. And Elijah, who thought the battle was over, is overwhelmed. God's people still haven't repented. They are still led by wicked people. If you don't think Baal is bad by the way, um, Baal was bad news. You guys heard of Baal's abub. Uh, it's a name in the New Testament given to the enemy, the Lord of the Flies, Baal. It's the same same idea, same force that's at work behind the scenes then, now. And Elijah is so overwhelmed that he runs he runs south 120 miles until he collapses under a tree and he's like i'm gonna die i'm just done forget this stuff i'm exhausted and then god comes and feeds him sustains him and says all right you run this far you're not done running go 40 more days you're going to mount horeb which is mount sinai covenant place where God gave the law to Israel, where God revealed himself to Israel, you keep right on going. There are so many lessons to be drawn from this story, because God showed up to Elijah on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, in fire, in lightning, in a cloud. When God revealed himself the first time on Mount Sinai, he did it with lightning and earthquakes, And this time, all those things happened, but God wasn't in the fire, and God wasn't in the noise, and God wasn't in the shaking. God was in the quiet, where it's so easy to miss him. And Elijah learned to hear the quiet. And Elijah found himself renewed, not in the the dramatic demonstration of God's power, but in the quiet presence of his love. When Elijah ran, it was a manifestation of pride. And you're like, how can that be pride? That sounds more like fear. What was he afraid of? He was afraid that he didn't have the ability to protect himself from Jezebel, which is pride. It was never his job to protect himself from Jezebel. It was God's the reason he was afraid was because he was looking to his own strength instead of God's he had stopped trusting in God's grace and started strengthening and uh, trusting in his performance his strength god met him though and delivered him through it listen there're going to come points and this is kind of the takeaway this is it there're going to come points when you are so discouraged you're going to get frustrated you're going to get tired of the church. You're going to get tired of people in the church. You're going to get offended by, by people in the church. You're going to see wickedness in the church. You're, you're going to see hypocrisy in the church. You're, you're, going to, you're going to perceive things that maybe aren't even there because of your judgmentalism. I don't know, but, but in the end, you're going to be tempted to run. You're going to be tempted to hit the eject button and run 120 miles south and get as far away from those people as you possibly can. The problem is you're not getting away from those people because you're one of those people. And God's grace is gonna take you not just 120 miles south, it's gonna keep taking you 40 more days journey back to the revelation of his goodness. Back to his presence. Listen to me, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but you need to know that these kinds of struggles are normative. God is going to work through that struggle to re-deliver you back to an experience of his grace. You know what will derail that process? Your refusal to release your pride. Your self confidence, your performance, and your pedigree. That's my warning. Fear pride, fight for humility, and renew yourself not in being right and not in in, in winning, and and not in performing, and and not in your self-control, and not in your obedience. Renew yourself in his love. I guess it's the only place you can be renewed. All right, I'm going to close this word of prayer. And uh, we're going to share communion. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to share communion and worship some more. Father, I thank you. I don't get it Lord I don't understand your ways I don't understand your plans I, I am often mystified by what you do and how you do it but Lord even though I don't understand your hand I trust your heart you are a God of love and you are motivated by that love And even when you do hard things, those hard things are manifestations of that love meant to invite us back to that place that is so unnatural to us, that place of humble dependence, that place where we love instead of judge, that place where we don't try to perform to earn your favor, we simply receive your favor as a gift, and we rest and it is grace. Lord, we were created to rest. It is our sin that drives us to earn and perform. And I thank you that even through all of this, you are delivering us from the very thing that would kill us and enslave us and then destroy us. Give us a passion, Lord, a love for you, so that we don't get distracted by those who also are following you, that we wouldn't allow the brokenness of people around us, the wickedness at times, the short-sightedness, the arrogance of the pride to distract us from you. You're the center of the community because you are the embodiment of grace. Renew our joy in your presence and renew our hope in your love. And in doing so, Lord, renew our passion to love one another to serve one another, to call one another to the feast that is your love. Meet us in it, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.